Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 37, Life in Decline. Life in late antiquity was, to use a rather appropriate quote, nasty, brutish, and worst of all, short. Child mortality for those six and under rose dramatically. Depending on the academic claim, it might have even reached the level of 40%. Throughout the Middle Ages, plagues raged through Europe, creating a horrendous death toll wherever they went. For example, the plagues of Justinian in the mid-6th century is blamed for ending the revival of the Roman West, and some academics credit for creating the opportunity for the Saxons to replace the British dominance in England. With the spread of disease, lack of medical resources, and much poorer diet, the dangers and spread of disease in urban areas meant that the numbers of savatas and towns were depopulated, leaving a population vacuum in some cases. Money, once a key trading commodity and payment tool, disappeared, as we mentioned before, and as these left, so too did much of the industry which was supported by it, much of the mercantilism of the earlier Roman age and much of the trade franchises disappeared in that process. Gone was the rich industrial trade routes, the fine pottery, the underfloor heating, the plumbing, and much that supported the lavish lifestyles of the previous generation. Under the expansion of the Germans and the raids by the Irish, Picts, and the civil wars in the population likely scattered everyone, and everyone found that life that much harder. Wales, during the early Middle Ages, was largely a rural lifestyle, with a collection of small family-focused communities like hamlets. These areas were referred to as treffy. In Wales, the basic unit of administration was the treff. The treff was a defined plot of land which could contain a large farmstead or a hamlet, if you had two trevs, you were actually considered to be probably in nobility. Later, this gets translated into town. As we get in the later Middle Ages, the trevi, which was held by bond tenants, that land was shared out equally amongst all adult males. In the free trevi, the land was divided equally between male heirs, including acknowledged illegitimate sons. The land could not be sold, though it could be mortgaged under the license from the lord. Kindred held certain property in common, which could include a church or even a mill. In other words, the basics of what you need in order to survive. Compared to life on the more settled parts of Britain, life in the rural for rural peasants likely remained largely unchanged. Wool was a key fabric. It was solid and durable and able to deal with the damp, cold climate. And it would often offer the best protection against the extremes of weather. Usually, and we'll get further into this, cloaks and tunics had circular clasps, which go back to at least the Iron Age. And in fact, much of the communities in Wales at the time likely bore a resemblance to their Iron Age ancestors. One could imagine that in areas where the Roman influence was limited to an occasional patrol and a road that would have likely had little influence on the community and how it saw itself. While literacy meant most writings were in Latin, even after the end of the empire, the influence of Brythonic and Ogham meant that over that meant that over a hundred years after the end of Roman Britain, the local language had moved back into dominance. It may never have left. We don't fully know, obviously, because not having a written Brythonic language before this period, it's hard to say. Likely, it remained the language of the people, but Latin was definitely the language of everything else. 
Like most middle-aged farming, it was done with small plots with horse or ox with a plow and a lot of human labor. Travel on the roads, once likely fairly safe in the Roman period, was now a lot more treacherous without a small army or at least some small amount of guards. Rivers and oceans remained somewhat safer ways to travel. And I say somewhat safer because, of course, you had raiders, pirates, and other kingdoms willing to raid and plunder ships for slaves, treasure, and other tradable commodities. So without a good network, you were likely never any safer than you would be on the roads. Never mind the additional hazards of weather and rough seas to go with it. The rural Welsh person of late antiquity did not wear a lot of drastic clothing of the later medieval period. No pointy shoes or ridiculous headwear or frilly items. This was an era where the clothing was built to last, not necessarily built for fashion. Tunics, and especially over-tunics, were a fashion statement for the peasants. Usually built of woven wool, they were durable, pliable, and, and they were typically found from your local livestock. The wool was then taken and created into thread and cleaned and bleached with urine. And then dyed, if they could do that. And when it could be done, it was done in various ways as far as dyeing is concerned. But typically the one color that you weren't really allowed as a peasant was purple, because purple was considered to be the color of nobility. It was also harder to get a hold of. So likely the reason why it's associated with nobility because of the difficulty of getting it. Rich men and women could afford linen as an option. Linen would be collected from flax, and it was thinner and a finer material. Of course, it would also be less durable, which makes it less useful for an agricultural lifestyle. Men largely wore trousers, which were of a similar woolen variety. Uh, due to Christianity and the weather, dresses were simple. They were typically made from a single piece of fabric, which was then sewn together into a dress. Tunics were then made to go either under or over the dress, and during rough weather, capes, cloaks, and shawls were used. These were largely made of both wool and sometimes of leather. Obviously, shoes or things that would be similar to what we'd consider to be socks or slippers would be then made of leather so that they are more durable. And that is if you could afford it or could fashion it. I would suspect largely that children with their growing patterns likely had less opportunity to wear shoes. Now, the other part to that is, of course, as I mentioned before, is that cloaks or capes were then often held with a brooch. These brooches, which uh, were circular typically, especially in uh, the Celtic areas, were very similar to what you would find in the Iron Age period. And because of the way people were buried, they would tend to be the only thing you would find because they were the only thing made of metal. So typically when looking in burials of this era, that's one thing you can possibly find with a skeleton because everything else likely will have rotten away. It's very rare, even in kiss, that you can find clothing or any sort of material to actually let you know more than what you would know from the metal sources. Women, uh, when attending Christian service, were also expected to wear veils which were largely very plain at this time, but as wealth increased, and of course, as we get farther into the Middle Ages, they start to become much more elaborate and much more detailed, and certainly in the wealthy classes, with the arrival of different materials, will change in their scope and in what they look like. And, of course, they were nothing like probably what we have today, likely because of the type of material involved. 
In some cases, such as the Saxons, leggings also became a popular option, particularly for men. And these could even be worn with uh, trousers. This would all change, of course, after the Crusades, which would then bring silk into the area from the Middle East and from Asia. And when that arrives, then, of course, you have a richer class wearing a totally different material than the lower classes. And thus, they are able to have different colors of items, different types of appearances, and, of course, wear much more elaborate and non-functional but yet fantastic-looking items something that the poorer classes won't necessarily be able to do. Now, the third major shareholder in our period that we're looking at is the clergy. The clergy, of course, at this age are different from what we think of when we think of clergy later on. They're not typically, to this point, uh, dealers of land or major merchants or really the social safety net that they become to some extent later in the Middle Ages, that this states are still relatively new to the areas that they're in, so thus they aren't to the degree that they would become later. The monastery system is still under development at this period, and it really doesn't enter into Britain until a hundred or so years later in any mass degree. But nonetheless, they have their own look, they have their own simple way of appearing, and as they start to expand and grow in the 5th and 6th and then into the 7th century, they'll actually change their looks quite drastically. You'll have much more fantastical and uh, elaborate dress from the clergy, but the monastic types will go a different way. They will go with a much more uh, sparse appearance. They'll be wearing rough woolen material, not the fancier garbs of other clergy. And as well, they will also shave their heads in a particular way, what they call a tonsure. Now, in some cases, these tonsures look different. They didn't all look like, you know, the Friar Tuck model with the little ring of hair and, and a bald plate on the top. They could actually be the other way around, where you had a small amount of hair at the top, but everything else clean-shaven. And this actually led to a lot of religious arguments, because the idea that you would do one particular type of haircut or another apparently was significant enough to have uh, religious arguments, at least, and in some cases, religious wars over. Uh, the other issue, which we will get into much more in depth as we enter the 7th century and 8th century, is the arrival of the argument over the date of Easter and how that reflects different ideals and how that becomes a very big argument in the church of that era. So all of these things have become really big issues, but aren't to this point. And Really, the, the monastic classes, like I said, are just starting at this point. So they're really just small, minor things. So like I said, the, the clergy of this age is not is not the Christian clergy that we think of a lot when we think of a medieval Christian clergy. They're not the power brokers that they will become. Uh, in fact, mostly the church is just trying to survive what's going on in the light of all this change and, and drastic adjustments. So there is a lot to it to show that this wasn't just a, you know, this affected everybody equally, and the church had to change with it as well. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. 
We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts. Now, when we talk about uh, the environment that these people lived in, one thing we have to keep in mind is that largely in our new system of travel and trade, we don't notice, while we do notice, like if you go into your local supermarket, that food sources are more plentiful and cheap at certain points of the year. Literally, you can go in at any time of the year and buy an apple. You can go any time of the year and buy an orange, even though they don't grow at the same time period or even close to the same time period and have different growing seasons in our part of the world. In another part of the world, it might be the other way around. And so we get stuff from Argentina in Canada. We get stuff in Britain. They get it from Spain, like oranges and those kind of things. We get apples locally. In Britain, you got apples locally, but conversely, you would end up getting apples from other places when, of course, it's too cold and not the proper growing season. All of that is wonderful nowadays, but back in that era, you didn't have that option. There wasn't massive amounts of trade of foodstuffs, and typically, if you were trying to trade things like fruit or vegetables, they would go bad before you ever got them to the place they were going to. Combine that with the concept that you have a minimal growing season. So you have minimal opportunities of collecting food. You must concentrate in that period of time to collect the most food possible. And often you have to then store that food and find ways of keeping it around as long as feasibly possible. Thus, smoking, drying, doing all these various things, uh, having mills around to help you make bread, all of that becomes incredibly important. And the worst period of time for your food sources is actually the most important period of time for you from a work perspective, which is the spring. Because your food sources are very plentiful in the summer and in the fall because you're in harvest seasons. But once winter comes, you don't have a harvest season anymore. So your vegetation will either not be there to pick. Now in Britain, in some parts of Britain at the time, there may have been sources of food that you can still get all year round. But it all depends on the winter, right? If the winter is particularly harsh, if there's snow on the ground, if there's ice, you're not going to be able to pick vegetation. Likely, this is where some of the the picking of various weeds became important to be used in certain meals and foods. The idea of picking grasses and dandelions and all of those kind of things that wouldn't have necessarily be in our common thought now. But you didn't have a choice back then. So you picked them, and you cooked them, and you ate them, and, and if that's what you had to live on, that's how you survived. Because the reality of it is, is you had to get that crop out regardless of your food sources. And so it was incredibly important to 
that era to be able to get your crop in the ground at the right time so that you can get as big of a yield as possible. Of course, conversely, or more problematic, is if you have a drought, if you have a flood, if you have a bad winter, all of those things delay the ability to get that crop into the ground or hinder the ability of the growing season to grow the food. All of a sudden you've got extra problems, a whole new set of issues which can lead to starvation. And so you can understand why people would be a whole lot less picky about what their food source is. You couldn't be, you couldn't afford to be because the truth of the matter is you had to make do. So likely they were very dependent on protein in the in the spring and in the winter. Uh, as well, grain was hugely important. If you couldn't grow grain, your food sources became very limited very quickly. Because vegetables and fruit don't last long. Even if you dry them out, you're still not going to have them for a very long period of time. So you have to rely on grain, which can be stored for so much longer. You have to rely on meat, which you can collect pretty much any time of the year. And you have to be able to put up with the fact that you're going to be eating things that we would now normally consider to be slightly unappetizing. Part of the reason why mice and rats were, you know, a food supply source. The reason why, you know, items, that, like I said, like weeds that wouldn't normally have been on our plate are most definitely on theirs. It's critical to keep yourself fed. And in that era... And for about a thousand years afterwards, you did what you could and you did anything you could in order to feed yourself. So all of those things are important and to a peasant even more so because you don't have the ability to go relying upon your neighbor, upon your servant, upon your subjects for support. You have yourself and your family to feed and depending on the situation, you could have a large number of children which could be helpful or could be a hindrance depending on how young they are. So all of these things kind of go into this and then bring along with all of this. Like I said, if you have a bad harvest or a bad flood or something that causes a hindrance, now all of a sudden you have much less to eat. Now, as not only do you have to struggle to find food, on top of all this, you have these plagues that come around by the people that do come to your area. So the merchants might bring with them rats. The rats have ticks who have the plague. You know, if that breaks out in your area and especially if you're starving you can imagine what that would do to the immune system of someone and how devastating it would be to the local region and so even more so it becomes important to keep yourself fed and healthy and all of this would sort of combine in on itself so the reliance upon all these things on the on the the animals for milk and cheese and and the basics of food sources, as well as having to deal with things like infestations and all sorts of other problems that you have when you're growing things. There's so much to it that would be so difficult to try and get your head around now, because often we live in cities, we don't have this type of thing, we have massive trade functions, even in you know restricted areas that allow us to eat and, and be able to buy things, no matter where they come from across the world. And that ability just isn't there at this stage. We're, we're, these are people who just don't have that option. So for them, they're living on the edge. And I think if we understand that, it gives us a lot of sympathy to them. And these are people who, let's be honest, the historical sources ignore. We don't hear about a lot of peasants. We don't hear about their lives and about how poor they were or how bad it was. 
you know, ancestral stories don't pass down that far. So other than like in morality tales and poetry, we don't have good concepts of kind of what went on day to day. And even then it's all stylized. You can't always say how, how close it is to reality. So combined with all that, the fact that your old system is gone and the only reliable people that you really have at this point is your family, hopefully your friends, and their ability to offer you a social safety net. Outside of that, you probably don't have anything. So it's a little wonder why this is a dangerous period. You can imagine if somebody's family got wiped out by plague and they weren't, you know, the, the farmer of the group or if they didn't have the ability to get more people to help them raise crops or, or grow grain, all of a sudden they're left at the edge of, of the social lifestyle. It's very easy to see why they would start to look at robbing to going in onto the roads and stealing from merchants and traders. All of this would make perfect sense because honestly, in some cases, that's all these people had as an option. And what it did, of course, is make everything so much more dangerous. It's also probably why slavery was so popular because if you couldn't get your own people or you didn't have enough people to grow things, why not go grab other people and make them work for you? Sure, you'd have to feed them, but that's all you'd have to do. And you could treat them like crap in the process, which it's, it's a very popular thing in that era. Obviously in the, it, it remains a popular thing in many years, but all of this shows you why this is happening. It also shows you why groups that can offer you these things can offer you safety, can offer you protection, can offer you maybe land or food suddenly become hugely important. And that's why we have the centralization of authority into these smaller groups. And we have a rising up of a nobility class while this is happening. And very similar to what happened in the Bronze Age when you end up with a, a nobility class there. As soon as you have somebody who can offer you these things, it becomes easier and easier to kind of migrate to that idea. And the more people that do, the bigger your tribe gets and then your country gets. And in this period of time where we see rapid growth of these kind of petty kingdoms, certainly that would be a critical component of it. The poor are not only, you know, your, your feeders, they're also your military. They're, they're a number of things that work for your benefit. So you want them there. You just don't necessarily want them to be upwardly mobile. So this kind of starts the layer of what we will eventually call feudalism because you have this origin of people slowly climbing together and a stratification starts to happen because of course the ones who have the land the ones who have the property the ones who have the animals will suddenly take on more and more power and their big ability is to be able to grant that to others be it the church be it a poor person be it another landholder suddenly they have a power that nobody else has and now all of a sudden you have obligations to that person because of this grant of land or grant of food. And so you can see where the edges of the feudal system as it'll come into focus in the later Middle Ages starts to happen at this stage. And we have the rise of this upper class, but with it a whole tier of obligation systems which gets created below it. And again, we'll go into this a little later and we'll talk more about it in detail. But I think it's a fascinating thing to kind of look at. Um, and I think it shows us that over a period of time, you can see how 
what looks to be a bunch of petty kings or maybe a local chieftain or a warlord who might have a little bit of a military force can suddenly take over because if they offer this ability to protect you and your land in a dangerous and scary time, it makes sense that you start to grow together and you start to unite under that leadership. And as long as the leader isn't an idiot, they can continue to build that leadership and build and combine and grow into a major force. And once they get big enough, then it sort of rolls on itself. And then you get kingdoms and kingdoms suddenly take up massive amounts of land. And it it all becomes very important as, like I said, as we go into the Middle Ages, we'll suddenly understand just how important it is and how it becomes a part of the problem that we run into later for Wales with England and with the Saxons and with the Normans, because the feudal system will carry on into that era as well. And how that will grow more and more troubles as the Welsh kings and Welsh princes have to deal with the English and with others. And I think this is sort of where it all begins, really. So next week, we're going to get into the languages of Wales and into how Latin ends and Brythonic becomes the dominant language, eventually leading to Welsh. And... If you have any comments, concerns, or want to talk to me, you can reach me at uh, the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com. You can reach me online on Twitter at the Welsh History Pod, or you can reach me via Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. I hope you're having a great day. We will talk to you all later. And I would also recommend that if you are enjoying this series, please leave us a rating and a review on whatever device or or tool you're using, like iTunes or Stitcher or whatever, or Google Play. If you can leave us a rating and a review, it helps others find us, and I really appreciate it. And once again, as I always do, I will recommend that you go check out some of the other things we're doing, which is at distractionsmedia.com. Thank you, everybody. Take care, and have a brilliant day. Bye. This has been a Distractions Media production. For more information, you can check out everything we do at distractionsmedia.com. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siecle, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts.